Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Anna Whiteman. Vice President at Coefficient Capital. Coefficient Capital is a new venture capital fund that leads early growth investments in fast-moving consumer goods, typically investing in Series A and B rounds. So far, they've invested in Just Spices, Nom Nom, Hydrant, and Personal Care. Without further ado, here's Anna. Tell me a little bit about your path into venture capital. Totally. Um, and bear with me, this might be a little bit of a winding story. So I, yeah, I guess I went to Penn um, for undergrad. I studied, my major was called philosophy, politics, and economics. So um, I didn't think at the time to kind of specifically concentrate in finance, but um, was really interested in my major and kind of the behavioral economics components. I started taking courses on the side for things like consumer psychology. Um, I worked as a research assistant to professors in the marketing department at Wharton. So it was always kind of there in the back of my mind, um, wanting to get involved in finance. But yeah, I, I spent my first internship professionally uh, at the Clinton Foundation. So that gave me access to some some pretty cool big shots who had come from the world of finance and now we're running like the core initiatives at the Clinton Foundation, like Clinton Global Initiative and Health Access Initiative. So over the course of you know working at the foundation, having conversations with all of these people, their advice was always to kind of go into the private sector, learn finance, learn how a business is built, learn how it's run, um, and come back and you know apply those principles to something like the foundation one day. So that's exactly what I did. I went to um, applied for banking internships. I landed at Credit Suisse in the financial institutions group um, and kind of quickly realized there that I did not, in fact, love covering insurance and specialty finance. But to keep myself sane during that two-year period of time, I started a trend spotting blog um, that I called Saucewalk, which was kind of like a mashup of like my own form of cool hunting product recommendations and some Billy on the street style interviews with like trendy people that I encountered on my walk to work each day. Um, so it, it kind of became clear to me over that period of time that what I wanted to do was marry the worlds of 
consumer with my desire to understand business. So that kind of led me to VMG, which is a fund in San Francisco, kind of one of the larger growth equity funds out there today in the consumer space. Um, so now VMG is kind of known for investments in businesses like Justin's Peanut Butter, uh, Spindrift Seltzer, Drunk Elephant was a big one that exited recently, and Sunbum. So I spent two years there learning kind of the ins and outs of growth equity and what it meant to invest and build and you know drive value creation through working alongside teams in the portfolio. Um, and I kind of had the aha moment that I could do like consumer investing for the rest of my career. So um, it, at the time that I was at BMG, a lot of like what I was working on and learning about was kind of the traditional retail playbook. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of the, the nexus of brands like Warby Parker and Casper. Um, all those DNVBs were coming into the world, just being built and scaled online. So kind of the metrics that they were using to value themselves were entirely different than the retail heavy set of brands that I was used to working with. So kind of moved over and, and tried to understand the world of D2C a little bit better. Um, started at a tech fund in New York and worked for two more years there on just understanding more of the digital business model. Um, things like retention and digital marketing. And um, these were kind of KPIs that I was learning about that I had never come across at VMG. So um, yeah, I kind of given my exposure to both sides of the coin on you know retail and the D2C side, came to realize that one couldn't really exist without the other. Um, retail brands needed to be able to meet their consumers online and vice versa. And there really wasn't a fund in the market that I saw as being kind of specifically set up to properly analyze and support both of these sides. Um, so that was timely when the partners at Coefficient approached me. I think they had actually dynamically filtered on LinkedIn for somebody who had a background in traditional growth equity and technology um, investing on the consumer side. So I was like one of two names that popped up on LinkedIn and kicked off a conversation then and that kind of lands me to where I am today. Wow, that's amazing. Going from the nonprofit foundation side to I mean I'm pretty surprised that insurance didn't tickle your fancy. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about Coefficient Capital, your stage and and your focus. Yeah, so Coefficient, we are a Series A and Series B fund, um 170 million dollar fund. Uh we are obviously very focused in consumers, so our core categories would be food, beverage, beauty, wellness, personal care, household, and pet. So kind of those fast moving consumer goods, um, a lot of which are just kind of core consumer staples. Um, we target businesses that are anywhere between five and 20 million in annual revenues. We'll put, you know, five to 10 million bucks uh, to work on average in each round. Um, and then, yeah, we, we kind of are very focused on being, as I alluded to in my background, just an omni-channel fund. So we have resources in-house to help support businesses as they scale digitally, um, help them kind of proliferate across a variety of marketplaces online, um, build customer awareness and, and you know, marketing strategies in the digital world, and then help to kind of take all of the data um, and analysis that we put together on the digital side to help inform a better, more efficient go-to-market strategy on the retail side of the world. You're focused on like digitally native vertical brands that are finally are maybe at the stage that are able to actually have an omni-channel strategy. Is that roughly correct? Or or do you also look at companies that, that are already in- In retail. I would say what we see more of, um, probably 90% of the companies that we speak to um, are scaling and have a majority of their sales 
online as they're looking to push into retail in a more meaningful fashion. Um, so I would say we don't specifically look for DNVBs, but um, it is helpful to kind of take the data and the backend analysis that we can put together um, to help those companies prepare for a more appropriate retail launch. Um, so I would say what we do like to over-index towards is um, companies that are also using technology in interesting ways. And to the extent that um, that technology is set up to live on shelf today, kind of the infrastructure on the retail side doesn't necessarily exist. So if you think about um, just like an example of a skincare brand that's using technology or customization um, to create kind of a personal skincare solution for you, um, that customization can't really exist at scale in retail shelves today. Although I do believe that kind of the hardware and backend is being built out to support that in the future. Um, but I would say to the extent that, yeah, we're, we look for companies that do have some sort of technology advantage. Most of those revenues at the outset will be coming from um, the online channels. How are you thinking about organic versus paid growth? I, I don't think there's any standard breakdown for if a company should have, you know, 80% paid, 20% organic at the seed, and then that should fix to 50-50 by the time they're raising a Series A. Um, but I think we, we, to the point that I made about community, um, I think those kind of, the ability to drive organic growth through um, word of mouth and, and a little bit more of a like smart PR strategy um, is attractive to us. Um, I think, again, the, the channels of Facebook and Instagram being a little bit more um, uh, efficient markets at this point, you're not really paying for differentiated consumers. You're kind of just paying for eyeballs. Um, so I think we, we do over-index for um, high growth of organic customer acquisition. But again, you know, pay-to-play is kind of the name of the game for consumers or for companies at this inflection point in their growth um, to to kind of get the eyeballs and top of the funnel needed to drive true conversion through the funnel. Do you have an example of a business that did a really good job just how they approached and executed growth strategy? One business that I really love and think that they've done just an exceptional job on organic customer acquisition is a company called Maud. They make sexual wellness products. So um, kind of not a typical company that's able to advertise on Facebook and Instagram normally, just, just given some of the restrictions of those marketplaces on AdWords. So mods had to be really creative in um, kind of growing an organic customer base through um, a channel that is typically, or I'm sorry, through a product line that's typically kind of stigmatized. So not many people are, are proud of, you know, Google searching for sexual wellness products, um, but mods brought this really elegant solution um, it's just a beautiful brand. It's highly sophisticated. Um, they have a blog and an email um, newsletter that goes out every so often called The Modern, um, which is just kind of lifestyle in and around the bedroom. Um, so I think they, they've done a really good job of curating content, finding a high intent audience that, you know, they're not able to reach on traditional channels. And, um, you know, they've, they've built just a really beautiful differentiated brand in a typically kind of um, let's say not so elegant space and uh, I think they've they've managed to grow the business really exceptionally um, using very very kind of bootstrap marketing tactics um, 
PR and, and they've just done an incredible job levering, um, you know, their, their consumer base to become true brand advocates for them. Yeah. That's really interesting how they approach organic growth. At what stage do you see digitally native brands expand to offline retail and develop an omnichannel strategy? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say somewhere between the seed and series A is when you start to dabble with retailers um, on a very kind of small level. So that's trying to find like, uh, we'll take the like food or beverage um, land as kind of the, the grounds that we'll play on here. But um, that's where you kind of go into your specialty, natural mom and pop shops and just start to test what the retail waters are like. Um, I would say when you're kind of at the series A and series B levels where you're kind of more capitalized and have the support to kind of go into some of these larger retailers where there is a lot of pay to play. There's a lot of things like slotting fees and, you know, other, other costs that you incur that you don't traditionally hit when you're um, more of a digital brand that you kind of can have the leeway to to expand into retail more broadly. But I would say, yeah, somewhere in the range of like without holding me to this number, four to five million in annual revenues um, is when obviously we start taking a, a hard look at brands that are about to, you know, make a splash in retail. And that's when, you know, we can kind of use the digital data that we've got to, you know, importantly inform a little bit more of a more efficient business model on the direct-to-consumer side and then support kind of a, an online channel diversification strategy. So that's maybe stepping outside of D to C and moving into the world of Amazon or other marketplaces. And then, you know, that kind of builds the grounds online for broader customer awareness and availability that helps support um, a more meaningful kind of go-to-market to go to market strategy on the retail side. And I think just importantly on this point, uh, one thing that's kind of changed in the retail landscape since um, when I was back at BMG to now is um, you have a really sophisticated built out backend on Shopify and Amazon that helps kind of drill down into exactly who your customer is, um, how often they purchase it, you know, what else they're putting in their baskets um, outside of, you know, your typical brand. So all of those are data points that really help to go to a buyer in retail, call it, you know, Target or Walmart and tell that buyer, you know, this is exactly who our consumer is. This is why they're coming to us online. And I'm going to pair that with what I know about the foot traffic in your store. Um, and I'm going to show you how, you know, we're specifically prepared to convert the customers that are already walking through your doors at higher rates than what existing brands are on shelf. And so I think, you know, just that point means like you have to have at least four or 5 million in annual revenues to support that data story to then make your um, foray into retail that much more effective um, and meaningful. How are you thinking about the future of online advertising? I mean, it seems like growing organically is almost more important than ever when it comes to online because, because as you mentioned before, you don't have those arbitrage opportunities and, and, and the markets for uh, Facebook and Google are, are, are a lot more efficient. How are you thinking about just like online, like maybe like the future of online advertising in general? As we kind of chatted about like Facebook and, and Instagram have uh, become pretty efficient marketplaces. So um, we have pretty solid benchmarks for what CACs should be across various product categories um, on those uh, on those kind of forums. But I think um, there's definitely still, you know, arbitrage opportunities to be had if you're doing things correctly. I think like one brand that um, I love on TikTok right now is a brand called Dream Pops, um, but they've got like 50,000 TikTok followers and 
um, I have to imagine that they're acquiring them at much more reasonable CACs than um, what Facebook and, and Instagram are presenting today. Um, so I think there's there's kind of, if you can master a non-traditional um, and probably like less systematized marketplace like TikTok, um, then there's a lot of growth to be had there for, for pennies on the dollar. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, like the something that we diligence for is just strong diversity of marketing funnels. So um, I think like podcasts are a great example of um, a funnel that'll allow you to have kind of a captive and targeted audience, but you have to be very specific with exactly which um, providers you're working with. And so you need somebody kind of in-house to really manage that correctly. Um, I'd say like affiliate marketing is also great, but it takes, you know, time to really sort out who your top affiliates are. Um, so I think there's TikTok is where I'm most bullish right now in terms of just other online platforms that I think are being underutilized by brands. But um, I think, yeah, it, it, as much as brands can get away from Facebook and Instagram while also maintaining um, kind of just consistent top of funnel acquisition um, at pretty standard predictable CACs, um, that's that's going to own the future for, for the time being. But um, I like to see brands that are getting a little bit more creative with um, how they're diversifying marketing funnels for sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, also appreciate you shouting out podcast. The Consumer VC is certainly open for business on the advertising front. <laughs> so uh, I also wanted to, fl- wanted to flip gears a little bit as well. I know that you founded the, the network uh, Rad Ladies. Uh, tell me a little bit about about why you created it and a bit more information about uh, Rad Ladies, that'd be great. I am super passionate about Rad Ladies. I love that you've asked about it. So I kind of got it started as I had started in the tech VC world um, and I was doing sourcing for the first time and I was just mind blown at the amount of time that I was spending every day having founders come in and just like pitch in a really one-sided manner. Um, and I, like, they were the ones that were building things. Like, why were they coming in and selling themselves to me? The, the dynamic of it just felt very odd. It was, it should have been more conversational. Um, so I think like the high volume of meetings that I was sitting in on, um, I was learning so much about these businesses that was valuable, but, um, I was kind of the only one that was sitting in the center of it with access to, you know, all of these founders. And I would have a meeting on Monday um, that felt like some point came up that was relevant to share with the founder that I was talking to on Tuesday, but I didn't, you know, was it in my job spec to kind of bring these two people together? I didn't know. Um, so I just felt like there was value to be unlocked in connecting all of the various dots, um, so that a founder with, you know, one business model could learn from the mistakes or best practices of somebody in a maybe non-competitive, um, other category that was, that was building, um, and solving an interesting problem that they might've had. So um, at the same time, I was kind of bringing a ton of like female founded businesses in just by nature of um, a lot of consumer brands are founded by females. Um, And I kind of noticed a style or pattern in the way that women would pitch versus men. It was, it was like that more conversational nature that I was looking for. And um, uh, they were a little bit more vulnerable in terms of what they would typically share as like weaknesses of the business. Um, And there was just this like resonance that I would feel with these founders when I didn't, I got the sense that they didn't get the chance to talk to a ton of other female uh, investors. So um, yeah, I did, I kind of put those two things together. I thought, why not connect all of these awesome females that are coming in and pitching and um, try to bring everybody together in a collaborative and low key 
kind of manner um, to just talk about business and see if it's remotely valuable. So the first one had like 10 women and we had like some pizza and some beer and that was like three years ago and it's grown, you know, pretty intentionally and on a referral basis since um, into this really awesome closed network of of women with like, we've got a dedicated Slack channel, we've got, you know, monthly meetups that we do um, and just the amount of support that these founders have, have provided each other. Um, and now some are direct competitors at this point, but um, that's just, it's something that I'm really proud of and it's really incredible. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's something that I, I don't know if it's a side hustle at this point because it takes a ton of time to continue to keep this community, you know, rich and, and um, meeting as frequently as we do, but it's really, really rewarding for me and um, kind of renews my, my purpose as a female in uh, investing. That's amazing. No, I think that's uh, really cool and innovative what you're doing. I wanted to talk as well about what are some changes in consumer behavior that you're focused on or trends that, that you're focused on? Ooh, um, yeah, I would say what I'm focused on, and this is just going to be very topical to what I'm looking at right now, but um, obviously the, the shift of grocery over to e-commerce is a big one. It's kind of one of the last uh, frontiers of consumer that hasn't been as meaningfully penetrated um, online as, as retail. So um, excited that, you know, that's going to kind of create a shift in consumer behavior is going to go on as consumers through staying at home are going to discover more marketplaces, um, probably discover a long tail of brands that, that are supported by these marketplaces that um, will give rise to some interesting kind of new discovery and, and um, trial for, for the food and bev uh, sector. So um, that's one thing that I'm excited about. I'm excited about, I touched on TikTok. Um, I'm very just for whatever reason, bullish TikTok, um, for acquiring, uh, younger consumer demos. So by nature of kind of the, the brands that I'm seeing doing work on TikTok, um, I am, I am looking at a lot of trends that are driving, um, Gen Z purchasing behavior. So, um, sustainability is a big one there, right? Like consumers at a younger age are, are more concerned than, um, you know, millennials and boomers around um, aspects of sustainability and making sure that products are formulated in, in clean and backable ways. Um, so that's a big one that I'm focused on. Um, maybe on just personal interest and preference. I'm looking a ton at um, evolutions in the alcohol sector. So um, love some of the new brands that are coming to market that are bringing a greater degree of, you know, transparency and and cleaner product formulation um, to the alcohol sector. So that's a big one um, that I'm focused on. And then, um, yeah, products and services for aging populations, I would say is uh, another thesis or sector um, that I'm I'm really excited about. I think you have more boomers that are aging in place and they're more tech savvy than ever. And so they're discovering products on a long tail of of, um, you know, marketplaces or otherwise, you know, discovery engines that, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to sell to these consumers and, um, sell them products and services that will enhance, you know, longer lifespans. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited in all of those kind of core categories. Um, so maybe that's not specifically consumer behavior, but I think those are kind of demos and, and places, um, that these demos are discovering products that, I think are really exciting to track as they evolve. Have you changed your like purchasing preferences or um, style since you have been quarantined? And do you think that any of those will stick for post COVID? 
oddly, I feel like I've actually shifted away from Amazon, which is okay. Yeah, which is I think that I don't think that's odd at all. Yeah, and I think that I've actually I think I use Instacart a lot more than than Amazon just to just to get the uh, kind of basics and 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 things that I, that you know on a weekly basis. I don't really know why. I think it's it's something that I've heard a lot, and people like Amazon faced a lot of stockouts, and they just announced recently that they're not they're putting customers for grocery on a wait list now. They're not accepting new customers. So um, I think one thing that, and I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, this is going to lead to a long tail discovery of more niche and specialty marketplaces, but hopefully that, you know, brings consumers a, a new slate of brands that they weren't familiar with. And I think it'll be a, a huge customer acquisition period of time for brands. And so six months from now, um, it'll be really interesting to see what their retention patterns are for customers that are acquired in these kind of COVID quarantine cohorts um, versus, you know, previous typical buying behavior. So um, I don't think that you're you're odd for shifting off of Amazon. I think I've seen more people shift off of Amazon um, than flock to it over this period of time, for sure. What are what are some shifts that that you've seen in your own consumer behavior? <sighs> oh, man, I've been drinking more <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I would say I, I've spent so much less, right? Like I'm living at home, so I'm obviously not shopping for myself, but, um, it's funny. My behaviors are so distinctly different from those of my family and my, my, where I'm quarantining right now. So for instance, like it's amazing to me for breakfast. I love to have like a very healthy protein bar and a green juice. And like, it's just very, very just so. Um, my dad loves Pop-Tarts um, and like toast with lots of private label store-bought butter and like a glass of orange juice from Minute Maid. So um, being with my family, I'm eating a lot less of the very, you know, particular niche brands. And I might be you know, on one side of the spectrum, just because I look at brands all day, and I have very specific preferences. But, um, you know, I live in a household where a lot of what's being bought and consumed is, is what you can find at ShopRite or Costco, um, or any one of the kind of just more mainstream retailers. So it's been helpful for me to honestly just get out of my bubble a little bit and, um, you know, rediscover, like, having dinner with my family. And it's, it's all things that, um, you know, I would never eat over the course of a normal week, but it tastes just as good. And, um, you know, it's been also fun to kind of remind my parents and teach them a little bit about some of the things that are like informing my purchase decisions. So, um, you know, Windex versus a you know, more sustainable brand where you like buy the, the, um, container one. Like Blue Land exactly, or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Without saying it, that's exactly what I was thinking about, but, um, and just getting, it's been great to kind of bounce some of the trends that we're thinking of off of my parents who are very mainstream traditional um, consumers and, and get their reaction. Cause I think we, we can get caught in a bit of a bubble of the investing New York LA crowd. And um, it's been great to, to kind of um, go back and forth with them on all this. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Anna's full episode. 